I love it when Tim plays his harmonica. Ah, it brings such joy to my heart. So thank you, Tim. Thank you for doing that. Yes, Jesus loves me. It's an amazing truth. One theologian said, was asked, what is the most profound song that was ever written? He said, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And it's the basis for our faith, what Jesus did for us. Matt Switzel had just completed 24 hour sh- a 24-hour shift as a firefighter and EMT. During that 24-hour shift, he only had about 30 minutes of sleep. So you can guess, he was really tired. He drove home, and four miles from home, he fell asleep at the wheel, woke up to this horrible noise, and realized he had just crashed into another vehicle. The driver of that vehicle was June Fitzgerald. She was pregnant, and she had an 18-month-old daughter, Faith, in the back seat. Faith survived the crash, but June and the unborn baby did not. What would you do? How would you react? If you were Eric, June's husband, what would you do in that situation? How would you feel? How would you respond when you heard about Matt and who he was? One of the girls in Eric's church walked up to him a couple weeks after this. And he, she didn't ask Eric, how are you doing? The little girl asked him, how do you think the driver of the vehicle is doing? And Eric looked at that little girl and said, you know what? We need to pray for that guy. We do. Eric was a pastor. He preached forgiveness all the time. But all of a sudden, he was forced in a situation where he had to make a choice. Is he going to live what he preached? Or is he going to do what the normal human response would be of living bitterness and seek revenge. The news approached Eric soon after this and said, what are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, the obnoxious questions that news reporters ask. No offense, Brooke. (laughs) And Eric told the news, you forgive as you've been forgiven. It's not an option. If you've been forgiven, then you need to extend that forgiveness. The criminal investigation for Matt went on for two years to see what was going on. Why was there, why did he fall asleep with the rack? All all sorts of things. During this time, Eric and Matt could not interact with each other. But Matt, Eric went to Matt's, Matt's sentencing because normally if someone's been hurt, they'll go to the sentencing to say their piece. And Eric got up to say his piece and how this had affected him. And he said, you know, it's no use ruining two families' lives. This guy needs to get the lightest sentence possible. And so Matt walked away with a fine and community service when he should have received a whole bunch more. 
after that sentencing, Eric reached out to Matt and said, Matt, I'm hurting, you're hurting, let's be friends. I want to, I want to be in your life. And so they started meeting every two weeks, the two of them. Matt got married, had two kids. One of his kids was due date, was the same due date that Eric's unborn child would have been. And that tore Matt up. Didn't know what to do. And so Eric came alongside Matt and walked with him through that guilt. Eric remarried. And their families are still, every time they can, getting together and walk with each other. What a story. Eric says, this has been just as healing for me too. I've taught on forgiveness, and I know that forgiveness is not so much for the other person, but for yourself. We can read stories like this, and it's completely true. We can read stories like this and say, wow, that's awesome. Good for them. I don't know how they did it. What an amazing story. And we say things like that because the normal human condition is not to extend forgiveness. That's not the normal human response. We as humans thrive on broken relationships. It's not good for us. We all know it. But the knee-jerk reaction is to break off relationships if we're hurt. We would rather cut people off who hurt us than work towards reconciliation because it's easier. We'd rather seek revenge than live in peace. We'd rather hold out for retribution than allow someone to go free. It's that normal humanness. Forgiveness and the resulting reconciliation is not natural. But unfortunately, those who live with broken relationships soon realize that that state breeds sin. It breeds addiction. It breeds idolatry. It's the perfect soil for it. Last week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit teaches us to love God and love others. And through the love of God and the love of others, we're able to turn away from our sin and addiction. Those relationships give us the strength to say no to those things and yes to following Jesus. Well, when we don't have a love for God and a love for others, it's a lot harder to turn away from the sin and addiction because broken relationships teaches us that life is all about me. That person hurt me, therefore I'm going to cut them off and I'm going to do what's right for me. I don't have to care about other people. I just care about myself and what makes me feel good. And you know what makes me feel good? That sin. Therefore, since life's all about me and what I feel, I'm going to go after that. And we go following sin, addiction, idolatry. Sin, addiction, idolatry. Let's see where we've been the past seven weeks. We have seen that we are powerless over our sin and addiction, that there's nothing we can do can change who we are in that state. We've seen that God has the power to change our life, and therefore we must trust him in faith. There must be a, drawn in the, a line drawn in the sand moment that we step across and say, I choose Jesus. I turn from my sin, and I trust him alone to save me. And there also has to be a point where we make a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We stare at the mirror and say, yes, I realize I'm a sinner, and these are the sins that I do, and this is why I pursue these sins. These are the triggers. These are the paths. And we fearlessly look in the mirror, and then we saw that we must be people who confess, who say yes, and we tell God and others 
that this is who I am, this is what I'm struggling with, and then after that we are people who repent. We turn from that sin and we turn towards God. Last week we saw that we must be people who follow Jesus in holiness. And this week we must be people who forgive. Part of overcoming sin and addiction in our life is restoring relationships in our lives. We forgive those who harm us and we become willing to make amends with those we have harmed. This sermon is going to focus on the first half, forgive those who have harmed us. Another time we'll talk about making amends with those we have harmed. Before we jump in, will you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we open your word and we see your heart and your compassion and the amazing steps you took to restore relationship with us, I pray that you would touch our hearts and you would convict us where we are not doing that. And you give us the guts to say, I want to be like you and we would take those steps to reflect you in the relationships around us. Father, you know that is not easy because we as humans like to hold on to grudges. We like to hold on to bitterness. Father, I pray you would break us of that and you would show us what it means to let your love and your light shine through the scars in ours. Oh, Father, As I'm up here, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. We must be people who forgive. Paul says something pretty provocative in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32, to Ephesians 5, verse 1. Two verses, just happens that there is a chapter break, because whoever's doing the chapter breaks thought, ha, that'd be a nice break there, but there shouldn't have been a chapter break there. Paul writes, happens to be our text, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in, as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as beloved children. The context that Paul is writing about to the Ephesians. He spends three chapters, as we call them, talking about our amazing salvation. And then starting in chapter four to five to six, he talks about how our lives every single day should be impacted and changed by the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that gospel? It's how the God of the universe, the just, holy, just creator, crashes into the story of our sinful, broken lives. Eight weeks ago, we discussed that we are all sinners. Every single one of us. That was first first sermon. We are all powerless in our sin and addiction, and there's nothing we can do to change that state. We are all addicted to something. We all have gods in our life that we are worshiping and serving that are not the one true God the one who created the heavens and the earth. We all do it. We all follow all these other things instead of him. The very simple verse we talked about was Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So simple. Everyone has missed the mark of the holiness and perfection of God. That sin that we have done brings death. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's what happens. Sin brings death. And unfortunately, there's nothing we can do to change that situation. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. 
even the good things we do do not equal the perfection of God. Think, think about it. Think about every single good thing you have ever done. Some of us, it might take a while. Some of us, it might not. I would tell you to pull out a sheet of paper and a pen and write, start writing all the good things you've ever done, but few people bring pieces of paper and pen these days. So think about it. Think about every good thing that you have ever done. Got a couple in your mind? Realize that all those good things that we say, oh yeah, that's good, pat myself on the back, good job, Peter, that was a great thing you did. All those good things, God views them as filthy rags. Because even though they're good in our mind, or in our morality, or what the culture tells us is good, God says, mm, yeah, that action does not equal my holiness or my perfection. And that's the standard where he's holding us to. His holiness, his perfection, and our goodness doesn't even come close to that. Well, then if we wanted to, if we had a sheet of paper, we could flap that sheet of paper over and we could start writing on the backside the opposite of all those good things. We could start writing all the bad things we've ever done. And that just gets depressing because it reminds us that we are horrible, broken people and who wants to remember that? But in case we start keep writing them down and we see our horrible brokenness, evilness, we see there's no hope because we realize that all those sins that we are writing down are sins that we have committed against God. Our evilness is against Him. Scripture actually calls us God's enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Everyone who has ever lived is God's enemy because we have sinned against him. That means since we are God's enemies, we are separated from God and we are doomed to hell for all of eternity. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus describes this place. Matthew 13, 49 to 50. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember, our good things do not equal the righteousness of God. Therefore, we are wicked and we're thrown into that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a pretty situation. It's not a hopeful ending. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Paul writes, But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. God looked on us with compassion. That's one of his characteristics, one of the attributes of God. I think about Moses up there on Mount Sinai. Moses is standing up there and he's told God, God, all these horrible things are happening. I need something to stand firm on. I need some hope in who you are. Show me your glory, God. I want to see your glory because once I see it, I know I will have the strength to do what you've called me to do. And God says, no can do. If you see my glory, you will die. But you go up on Mount Sinai. I'll pass in front of you. I will cover your face so you will not see me. But I will declare my character to you. I will tell you my name, my attributes. So Moses goes up there, and God passes before him, 
And as he passes before Moses in Exodus 34, he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he continues on some couple other verses of characteristics. But one of the first things that God says is, I am the compassionate, gracious God. Jesus, God with us, comes to earth. And he walks amongst us, amongst us in our filth and our brokenness, seeing our sin being hurt and beaten and spit upon and rejected. And he looks at the crowds with the same compassion. In Matthew 9, 35 to 36, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. That's why Jesus spent time with the outcasts of society, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, because he had compassion on people. He saw his creation stuck in sin, separated from their creator, separated from all the blessings that come from a personal relationship with the creator, and he came 2,000 years ago on a rescue mission to these sinners. Joe Stowell was, used to be president of Moody Bible Institute, and he tells of visiting England. Now, England, as we know, they use different words there than we use here. Growing up, Joe Stowell, he's an older guy, uh, so he, whenever they had a tow truck, they would always call it a wrecker. Everyone here, yeah? Okay? Wrecker. That's what they used to say. Okay? The, newer, the younger generation is like, what? They used to call it a wrecker. And they would say, here comes the wrecker. England, they call it a rescue truck. So instead of saying, here comes the wrecker, they say, here comes the rescue. Completely different frame of mind. Instead of a truck coming to bring a wrecked car to a lot to sit on, it's a truck coming to bring a wrecked car to a place that will fix it. Jesus came to earth out of compassion for his creation, not to sweep it into the trash, but he came as a rescuer to make it to something new. Jesus tells the parable of the shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and one day he goes out to the fold and he counts his sheep, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, eighty, ninety, ninety-nine, and there's one missing, one stupid, miserable, obnoxious sheep that refused to follow the shepherd. And instead of saying, good riddance, the wolves can have you, he leaves the 99 and he goes and tracks down that stupid, miserable, rotten, obnoxious sheep that refused to follow him. Because of God's compassion, Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, and earned forgiveness for us stupid, miserable, rotten, obnoxious sheep that refused to follow our shepherd. As our text says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32 to 5, 1, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Picture a courtroom, if you will. God's up on the judgment seat, sitting up there in his judgely robes. We're down there in the defendant, 
The prosecutor's pacing back and forth, froth and spit flying out of his mouth as they do. Shaking his finger at us, saying, look, all these things that this person has done, they are guilty, guilty, guilty. Sorry, Dean. (laughs) And we're sitting there in our seat looking at him saying, yeah, it's true. He got us dead to rights. We're, whatever the judge says, it's just. It is completely just. David writes this in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only I have sinned, David said, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. We sit there in the defendant's seat, and yeah, there's nothing we can say. All the evidence is against us. Everything, we deserve whatever the judge says. And so the judge brings his gavel down... Guilty! Deserving of death. Take him out. As soon as possible, get it done. What do you do? There's nothing we can do. No defense we can give. And just as the officers are coming to take us away, the back doors burst open and a man runs in and says, Stop! Stop! I'm taking his punishment. Kill me instead. The judge says, okay. So he gets taken out, and the judge looks at us and says, nothing I can do. Your punishment's been taken care of, therefore you're free to walk away. You're forgiven. And we stand up not knowing what to say as we hear the screams of the man in the execution chamber. We walk out. When God says we stand forgiven, it's not because he said the punishment was just taken away because of his kindness. When God says we stand forgiven, he says it because our punishment happened, just not on us, but on Jesus Christ. The hymn goes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it, white as snow. Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So let's review. We sinned against God. It's truth. God looked with compassion on us in spite of us sinning against him, in spite of us declaring him our enemy. He looked with compassion on us. And he sent Jesus to the earth to die on the cross for our sin, taking our punishment on himself. In spite of us sinning against him, in spite of us declaring him our enemy, so that we might be brought into a relationship with him. 
What a savior. What a savior. Who does that? We don't, but God did. But the kicker is, Jesus looked at his disciples and he told them in John 20, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. We are to be people of peace, spreading peace because of the compassion that God has placed on our hearts. Or, as Paul was inspired by God to write, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. We are to follow God's example every single day of our life, which means we are to follow him in extending forgiveness. What does this look like? Well, it means looking at all those people who have sinned against us, who have hurt us, who have made our lives miserable. Would you like some examples? Let's have some examples. We'll start off big. Let's talk about Joe Biden. Or maybe we should talk about Donald Trump, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. I've talked with a whole bunch of different people. I'm not supposed to get into politics. <laughs> Talk to a whole bunch of people who say, oh, Joe Biden's just making our lives miserable. He's ruining our nation. Or Donald Trump, why is he running again? He's ruining our nation. And then they start saying all these things they would love to have done to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That's not forgiveness. Let's spread the love a little farther, okay? We could talk about the whole Republican Party, or we could talk about the whole Democratic Party, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. And I've talked to a whole bunch of people on both sides of the aisle saying, oh, the Democrats are just ruining our nation, and all oh, the Republicans are just ruining our nation. Let me tell you what I would do if they were in my house to them. If that's a little too close to home, We'll lessen the bite. Let's talk about your husband or your wife, shall we? Perhaps your brother or your sister, your cousin, your mom, your dad, your son. And you might be sitting in your seat, oh, no, my life's fine. There's no bitterness in my heart. There's no grudges. No one's done anything really that bad to me. We are all human. We're all surrounded by humans. Whether we want to admit it or not, it is the truth. Which means, even if we don't want to admit it, we bear in our heart and soul wounds by people who have unintentionally hurt us. And then we've got those other wounds. Deep wounds by people who have intentionally hurt us. We all have them. I think about Joseph. In the Bible, Genesis talks about Joseph. He was almost the youngest, a whole bunch of brothers and sisters ahead of him. And they hated his guts. And they said one day, we're going to kill Joseph. And then they said, no, you know what? Probably shouldn't do that. We're going to throw him in a pit. 
So they throw him in a pit, and they say, you know what? Let's make some money off of this. And they sell him to slave drivers who bring him to Egypt. And then they go and lie to their dad and say, sorry, dad, your favorite son was killed by animals. And they cry with their dad, and they mourn this brother they hated. And De- Joseph gets led into Egypt, forced to live for the rest of his life in a country that does not speak his language, that does not share his culture, does not worship his God, and he's persecuted for most of his life because of it. Talk about a perfect opportunity to allow bitterness to fester. Now, my situation growing up wasn't that dire. I was the youngest, three siblings older than me, one who shall not be named is in this room right now. I'm not putting in line with Voldemort, if you know that, sorry, okay. I'm not going to talk to my siblings. I was 12. I hadn't hit my growth spurt yet, uh, which meant I was going to hit my growth spurt, but I hadn't hit it yet. So my body was storing up energy for that growth spurt. Does anyone know what happens when a boy's body stores up energy for a growth spurt? Huh? What was that? It comes out their mouth. <laughs> it goes in their mouth. And they become blobs. I was a chubby 12-year-old. I was. I was a chubby 12-year-old. And one day when I was 12, I was playing outside after church with a bunch of my friends. And there was a girl who was 12 days older than me. She had hit her growth spurt. And she challenged me to a race. And I was stupid. And I said, sure, because I'm a boy. And I start chugging as fast as my chubby little legs will carry me. And then she starts running. And pretty soon, she's passing me. And as she passes me, she turns around, flips her hair over her shoulder. I could just see it, slow wave right now. And then she says, speed up, chubby. And keeps going. Now, do you know what happens when a chubby 12-year-old boy gets told, speed up, chubby, by a 12-year-old girl? <laughs> I did not fall flat on my face. But I hated her. I hated her guts. For the next five years, that bitterness grew in my heart. She had no idea what she did. She had no memory. It was seared on my brain what happened. She had no memory of it. But as I grew, that bitterness grew too, to the point when we were 17, we went on a college trip together. And she literally thought that she would not survive that trip. She thought she'd be dead by the end of it. Because my hatred was so huge. I'm not proud of that. But she feared for her life because of me. We all have wounds in us. People hurt us all the time, and it's important how we respond to them. It's no good lying about them. It's no good stuffing those wounds. We have to be honest about them, but we are also called to imitate God. God looked with compassion on us who are actively hurting him. 
And therefore, we are called to look with compassion on those who have hurt us. Where in the world does that compassion come from? Well, first off, we remember who we are, that we are sinners desperately in need of a Savior. Therefore, we are not better than the person who has hurt us. They're a sinner, we're a sinner. We've hurt our share of people just like they have hurt us. We can't put ourselves up on this ivory tower and say, we're better than you. No, we hurt people all the time. Yes, what they did was wrong. What they did deserves an eternity in hell, Jesus declared. Just like what I have done deserves an eternity in hell. And just as I don't want eternity in hell for me, I don't want eternity in hell for them either. But pastor, what they did really hurt me. Yeah, I know. And there's people who have really hurt me in the past, more than that 12-year-old girl did. That's just a... And I know things in your life. As I was reflecting on this sermon, thinking about people who would be sitting in this room, I started crying, thinking about the hurts that I know are sitting here today. And people can say, but pastor, they've really hurt me. Shouldn't they come and ask me for forgiveness? Do I have to show compassion before they show repentance? Well, actually, Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go to them and point out their fault just between the two of you. Pointing out sin is an act of compassion. We are giving someone an opportunity to change. Just like God stepped in our life and gave us an opportunity to change, we get to step into other people's lives and give them an opportunity to change. And if in that moment they still don't change because of our compassion, we extend them forgiveness. Even if they don't change. Now, there are a lot of different false teachings about forgiveness, and I have to address those false teachings. First off, forgiveness is not forgetting. There's a statement, you forgive and you forget, but that's not the truth. It's not the truth at all. Let's consider David. David was king of Israel, man after God's own heart, Scripture tells us. Well, one day, David committed adultery and then murder. He slept with another man's wife and turned around and killed the other man. Not a good situation, not a good guy. If he lived in Neely, we'd probably tell our families, you're not going to spend time around that guy. Really bad stuff. David repents, not right away. It takes him over nine months to see that what he did was actually wrong. That's pretty bad itself. That takes you nine months to see that adultery and murder is wrong. But it took him nine months. Finally, He realizes it's wrong, he repents, he asks God's forgiveness, and God extends that forgiveness to David. Now my question is, God forgave David, did God forget what David did? No, because God inspired that it would be written down and recorded for the next 3,500 years for people over and over and over to read. One day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Revelation tells us this. And as we stand before the judgment seat of God, books are going to be brought out, which has recorded everything we have ever done. Even those people who stand redeemed and forgiven by God. So no, forgiveness does not mean forget. It cannot mean that. 
Forgiveness also does not mean removable punishment. Let's go back to David, since we're there with him. David and Bathsheba on that night of adultery conceive a child. Nine months later, that child is born. As I said, David still hadn't repented over that course of nine months. So Nathan the prophet confronts David and explains the atrocity of what he did. David smacks him across the side of the face, cuts his heart to the quick, realizes, oh my goodness, I have sinned against God. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. That's great. Forgiveness. Punishment has been removed. Yes? No. Nathan continues and says, but because by doing this you've showed utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And seven days later, the child does die. It's a tough passage. It's a very tough passage. Forgiveness does not mean that you don't have to pay something to society for what you've done. At the beginning of my message, I talked about Matt and how Eric said, I forgive this man. He didn't say, let's remove the punishment. He said, give him the least possible. Matt still had a punishment. Harm still happens in our lives when people hurt us. We can't sweep that under the rug. We can't allow a person to keep performing that sin. We can have compassion, but we don't have to have trust. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not removing punishment. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is release. Forgiveness is release. The forgiver tells the offender that they don't have to pay any debt to the offended. God forgave us our sin. We don't have to repay any debt to him. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. When we turn to someone who has hurt us and say, I forgive you, we are saying that that person doesn't have to repay any debt to us. They might have to repay debt to society, but they don't have to repay any debt to us. We're not going to hold that offense against them. How in the world can we say it to someone who has hurt us so deeply? How can we turn to them and say, you don't have to repay any debt to me. I'm not going to hold any bitterness. I'm not going to change my attitude in a negative way. There's no hurt that you have to go through on my account. How can we say this? Well, if the person who has hurt us is a Christian, if they've confessed their trust in Jesus for their salvation, we know that Jesus died on the cross for that sin that they committed. For the hurt that they did to us, Jesus took that penalty on the cross 2,000 years ago. The debt has been paid. If we do not forgive that person, we are declaring that Christ's death on the cross, his sacrifice, was not enough. We're saying that his death on the cross was enough to forgive me of my sins, but wasn't enough to forgive them of their sins which is a lie. His death is enough for all sins. So he definitely died for that sin, that hurt that was done against me. Now, if the person who has hurt us is not a follower of Jesus Christ, they are not a Christian, the death that Jesus died on the cross is not applied to their account. Forgiveness is not theirs through Jesus yet. But we're still called to forgive. We're still called to release any debt they have 
on us because the righteous, just judge is good in the band payment one day. Because even though they sinned against us and hurt us, they also sinned against God and hurt him. And his punishment is greater than any punishment we could ever give. Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God will collect on that hurt, which should cause all of us to sober up. We realize what is coming for that person who has hurt us. If we step in that way, between them and God, we are declaring that we are God and we know better than God what is just. And that is a bad idea to say that person, I demand payment from that person and I will get it out of him. Because we're saying that our punishment is more righteous than what God can give. Instead of that, we forgive, release all claims into the hands of the holy just God who will do what is right will do what is just on that fateful day. How do we forgive? We walk up to the offender and we speak the truth. We say, this happened and it hurt. We have to speak the truth. This happened and it hurt because of these reasons. However, I forgive you and I will not allow your actions to affect the way I treat you. If our actions change because of the hurt that they gave, we haven't forgiven them. If we lash out at them, if we hold bitterness at them, if 10 years down the road we say, you remember what you did, that's not forgiveness. Because each time we say, you remember what you did, or each time we lash out, or each time we hold bitterness in our heart, we are saying, that person owes me a debt, and I'm going to make them hurt because of it. That's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. Earlier I said that forgiveness does not mean that we trust someone. It's very important. Trust is, is, a, is a mode of reconciliation, which is different from forgiveness. You can forgive someone and not be reconciled to them. That's a different sermon. Forgiveness is the start of the process of reconciliation, and we need to move towards that, but that's a different sermon. So much of our sinful patterns come from bitterness and unforgiveness. It's true. We close ourselves off to so many people and we've convinced ourselves that we are the righteous one, so it's okay if we do this thing or that thing. Or marriage relationship, where it's a broken marriage relationship and we we're, we're, we're just don't want reconciliation, we won't forgive, and we've convinced ourselves we are the righteous one and our spouse is not, and we treat them differently because of that. When we're just as sinful as they are, and we need to give it up, pursue relationship again through the love of God and the love of each other. To extend our hand out, just like Eric did, and say, you killed my wife, you killed my child. Let's be friends. And only through the healing of Christ can that happen. We must be people who forgive. Will you pray with me? Father, It is hard to follow you. It is hard to imitate you. 
It is not natural for us to look with compassion on those who have hurt us so deeply. But Father, help us to know how to do that. So that when people ask us, why in the world, why in the world are you showing me this compassion? We can declare people your love for us. That we're able to do this because you did it to us sinners. Teach us to live the gospel every single day with everyone we're with, Lord, until finally you call us home into that world of perfection. Thanks, Father. Amen. If you'd like to stand with me as we close,